KZSU, Stanford, 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program, the show about housing, land use, and equity. In the program, we have on two guests, Roberta Alquist, equity advocate of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and formerly of the Apollo to Tens Union, and Jeff Levinsky of Apollo to Matters. A bit of a different perspective than normal guests, insofar as it represents the slow growth residentials movement here in Palo Alto. And we're talking about the AJ Capital acquisition, eviction, and attempted conversion to hotel of the present hotel here in Palo Alto. And uh, one more piece of explanation before we dive into things uh, is we refer to this later, uh, an upcoming date for a emergency ordinance at the Palo City Council uh, for the 1482 AB 1482 temp protections saying it's happening on November uh, 18th. This got delayed. This got delayed until December 2nd due to <laughs> various reasons. So uh, don't take that date to, uh, to heart. But let's just get into the conversation. Welcome, Roberta. Hey. And welcome, Jeff. Good afternoon. Hi. So we are talking, uh, at least to start out here, about the present hotel. So this is something we've talked about in this show before several times, uh, but uh, we're more more detailed today. Uh, so the status of the Preston Hotel is currently everyone has been evicted, has been empty for some time. It is currently still not permitted to be a hotel, and AJ Capital, the people behind the acquisition and the evictions, is still trying to grab a, a, a waiver uh, and, and was I was I was seeing a, a bunch of people uh, just the other the week at AJ Capital demonstrating. Oh, we're ready to move on. <laughs> we're ready. We have this hotel all good to go. But uh, we're here with Jeff. Uh, Jeff has been uh, played a, a crucial part in actually uh, uh, stopping AJ Capital from being able to move on as a hotel. So I guess uh, talk about maybe the first time that you got brought into this into this whole story and, and maybe or any other background information you think people should know. Sure. I heard about the AJ Capital proposed purchase of uh, the building um, several days before that purchase, and being familiar somewhat with the city laws, I immediately said that I don't think that's legal. Yeah. And um, not only is there the parking um, issues that um, would be very expensive for them to solve, but there's a, a simple rule in Palo Alto that hotels can only be so big, and what they're proposing is about three times the size of the maximum that a hotel can be. The problem, um, and I'll jump right into it, is that our city seems to, again and again, allow developers like AJ Capital, the purchasers, to ignore the laws. And despite the fact that, uh, you know, we knew that this wasn't a legal um, project, the city instead neglected to say anything about that to AJ Capital. It then says it relied upon the city's statement that there was no problem and went ahead with a purchase. Had the city said, wait a minute, you know, this isn't legal, this isn't going to work, AJ Capital is now saying they would not have purchased the building. And that means the 75 units would remain as what they were, um, relatively uh, low um, cost housing. And we wouldn't be here today talking about this. Yeah, the fairy tale ending would be that you came ahead with this with this rule, and then it would have stopped everything. But AJ Capital, even though they knew that there was a rule against them, still went ahead with evicting everybody. Which I'd say you could either look at as, you know, 
you know, spite or just a bad action, or you could look at it as, you know, game theoretic, it's a lot easier to lobby for this now that there aren't actual people, you know, who have something to gain. Now everyone has already lost. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a hard thing to, to, to take. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was I was talking with uh, one of the former residents, uh, Dennis, about this, and he's actually at the moment, for various reasons, trying to uh, defend AG Capital, saying, "Oh, it wasn't their fault. The city screwed up. The city should have told them this." Uh, and the fact that they didn't means that AG Capital is just the victim here. Uh, I would say, in any case, it seems just tragic that whether or not a city gives proper disclosure of this, uh, whatever the grandfathered facilities rule is. This is like a very, very thin thread protecting these tenants. And in the end, it didn't protect them because the city very conveniently <laughs> forgot about it in a way that, in the end, has moved this one step forward to being uh, converted to hotel use. And I guess well, one thing I kind of think in my mind is, as a skeptic, the city has a lot to gain. Hotel taxes are a major windfall. And is it is it too cynical to imagine that the city tries to turn up the cranks on, on producing as many hotels as possible and doesn't do enough to produce as much uh, low-income housing as they can? I, I think you're right. Um, there's a project down on San Antonio that was slated to be housing, and instead the city allows it, has allowed it to become, and uh, it's being constructed at this very moment, um, a huge hotel complex. So we are losing the opportunity for housing by the city's interest in that. By the way... Everybody says, you know, well, you know, AJ Capital wants it to be a hotel, but AJ Capital is a company that looks at the bottom line. At yep. the last moment, if they get their approval for the hotel, at the last moment they could say, you know what, hotels don't pencil out. We're going to turn it into an office building. So then the city won't get the income from the hotel either. Yep. And AJ Capital has changed their position enough already that you know I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up being an office building. Some people were saying OJ Capital has experience in hotels. They want to have a hotel for that reason. But I'm sure if they find the right buyer, they'll they'll come out fine in some case. They may they may have lost money on this gamble. But uh, by the way, I just just want to address AJ Capital, short for Adventurous Journeys Capital. Exactly. That's right. And by the way, they do. Um projects other than hotels. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I heard that as an excuse. I yeah. guess it doesn't really it doesn't really <laughs> pencil out. Uh, but as it is now, you. I mean, I think that. Uh, there is there is a concerted effort to prevent this from being turned into a hotel. Part of this is because we need the residential units. And I think part of it should be, or at least I view it as, when someone does an action that we want to prevent more of in the future, such as this eviction, uh, which I think is largely uh, a gambit by AJ Capital, it's very right as the city has leverage over them to get as many extractions as they can. They don't get many chances like this. So, um, I mean, so well, what arguments do you hear from from different people talking about whether uh, what kind of extractions do people look to get, and and what what are the chances of the council uh, allowing this? Well, I I'd have to speculate, but I think that in terms of Roberta and I were just talking about, you know, the possibility of having some or considerable amount of lower income housing. Um, remain at uh, at the building, and I think that would be truly wonderful. But from a legal perspective, I don't know that the city would have any traction at all if the building were to remain residential. If the building were to become 
part of partly a hotel and partly housing, I think AJ Capital would object because there's a minimum room count that they would want, and um, we hear that that's a hundred rooms. Um, is needed to make a hotel viable, and that's exactly the number of rooms they're trying to get. So I'm not sure they'd, they'd go for anything like that. Well, they wouldn't necessarily like that, but because 75 people, 75 not only people, but 75 units of this housing has been taken away from the city, I think the city needs to argue that because there is a housing crisis, the city needs to pressure all developers to 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 present some plan that would allow for a percentage of worker housing and that's what the women's international league for peace and freedom housing low-income housing committee is advocating at this time meanwhile because the city has done nothing to stop demolition of existing rental units there are places all over town, especially around the downtown, that are being threatened and are actually going to be destroyed. There are three buildings, for example, at 565 Hamilton, all worker housing, and almost all of those people have had to leave the city uh, that's up for demolition, and they're going to replace these three buildings, which had maybe 15 units of housing total, with... Uh, Luxury, initially it was luxury condos, and now they say they're rentals and and some office space in addition. So another demand of the Low Income Housing Committee of Wilf is that they uh, put a moratorium on office development until the city takes real serious concern and starts planning for housing because the surrounding communities have done more than their fair share. East Palo Alto... Redwood City, Mountain View, they're all building worker housing, and we're not doing hardly a thing to uh, deal with the housing crisis. I always, I guess, I, I say the the ability to block commercial and office development, you know, until until things are, are better, I say is, it's certainly a pragmatic step forward. I guess, primarily, I distrust Palo Alto to police itself. Palo Alto has had a record for decades and decades of producing more jobs in right. office growth than housing. So if they say, oh, we have a moratorium, let's let's do an office cap, let's do this, why are they not going to take it away as soon as people aren't looking? I guess I, I kind of would rather the region uh, kind of clamp down on them because I just don't trust them to police themselves. What do you I think? Th- I think that's a good point. But on the other hand, I don't know if you realize they did have a proposition which mandated that office development be stopped until housing uh, was built. And it was very quickly... uh, Well, there was also a law in place for downtown called the Downtown Commercial Cap. And that was another law that AJ Capital would have run into with their hotel proposal. And uh, unfortunately, a majority, a slim majority of the council voted to get rid of that cap. So I I think you're right. There's... It sounds like it wasn't a very strong cap if it went away so quickly. Well, for council votes, yeah, is all, exactly. Is, is got, exactly, got rid of it. Right. The there is a citizens' initiative that um, created a uh, cap in Palo Alto, um, but you're right that policing of things is is vital, and that goes back to the AJ Capital thing. Also, I think laws have to be well constructed. The project Roberta just talked about. 
um, is an amazing project in certain regards. First of all, it is actually making our job housing imbalance worse because the amount of new office and new jobs that they're creating at this project will exceed by it's about 3.8 the number of new housing units. Also, you should be really cynical because they're using a housing bonus to make the office um, component of the project. So something that we were told was going to be great for housing instead is making the job housing imbalance worse. Right. They're able to build up to 7,450 square feet of office space in this project. And it's been held up and we've held it back a little bit by requiring some changes. For instance, they have a I think a 13-foot ceiling, and it's been. They've asked the planning commission has asked them to lower it a couple of feet. But I think this is going to be built, and again, it just uh, it shows how disingenuous some of the city council people are who say, "Oh yes, we want some housing in Palo Alto. We want some worker housing." But when the wheel hits the road, that um, they they have done very very little, and now with. Governor Newsom's new law, which is going to uh, provide just cause evictions and put a cap on rents. Um, I think you're giving him too much credit for being the real mind behind 1482. He did sign it. He signed it. Tenants have have done the work, yes. But uh, when that goes into place, and Palo Alto very slowly is dragging its feet again to give these tenants protection in the next two months... Menlo Park has passed legislation so that there's coverage during this time. Redwood City, East Palo Alto, I think Mountain View is in the process Tuesday of doing this. Palo Alto is maybe going to consider it this coming week, maybe. The, the 18th of this month is yeah. the, yeah. And, uh... I mean, to, so to, to have more background about this, 1482 is, for a lot of, lot of places, the first real p- protection tenants get in the peninsula because... Right. You know, in the state, well, exactly. I mean, so many places, San Francisco, right, right. You know, Los Angeles, San Jose, Oakland yeah. have had protections. But the city councils of the largely homeowner-based uh, cities of the peninsula have been far behind that. So there's now a state-level law, which starting uh, next year will actually put together uh, some sort of uh, of rent increase cap, uh, 5% right. plus CPI. 5 to 7, yeah. Yeah, and then... Um, just cause evictions. Just cause, until the sun sets, I mean, hopefully it's it, it, it's a start. But the problem is that many landlords are taking advantage of this in the brief window between now and then. Even though they'll have to reset it, uh, they could still, one, extract more rents for a few months, and two, they can actually... Uh, evict it's open season for evictions i mean it's that's the default right and that's been going on redwood yes. city we have been informed by tenants that several tenants have gotten up to 500 dollar rent increases and sure. there have been evictions all over the area have you heard uh so in palo alto have you heard uh stories of things happening right here yes so what what are any any anecdotal evidence i'd like to know like kind of comprehensive but if anything you know um, I've heard from a council member that they're getting lots of letters from tenants who are um, in been caught by this um, yeah. process. I have to say, um, having looked at the state law, I'm I'm not surprised. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I agree with Roberta's hand signal here. The 
it's not a very, very strong rent control law. And, you know, the fact that I guess some landlord groups actually you know, were willing to endorse this is, is you know, CAA back down, and some people say like, "Oh yeah, if CAA is going to fight against it, you know it's not that bad." Right, Uh, and the realtors were actually like fighting against it hard, but. I mean, it's it's still a thing. You really need, if you want real protections, you need to take the CAA kicking and screaming. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, CAA holds a lot more water in Sacramento than renters do. Right. Yeah. The yeah, that's right. The, you can if you kick out a tenant, um, you know, you have to pay them some money, but you know, you can then jack up the rent. So mm-hmm. you know, yeah. this and and five percent a year above inflation turns out to be an extraordinary, uh, you know, high number. And most apartments could never you know, it, expect it's, to charge. It's not. It's not nothing. I mean, a few years ago, I got a thirty-three percent rent increase in a year. Uh, so it's so wild stuff happens when there's no rules. But right. I mean, it is true. We need real renter protections, and this is this is certainly not uh, the finish line. That's right. right. Yeah. So I, a question earlier, you're talking about uh, kind of the goal of to to uh, cap office development until housing is you know kind of fixed. And I guess the question: Look, everything that's going wrong with housing here, the house, the the, the median price of a house is three million dollars in Palo Alto. Median price of rent, we're talking you know close to three thousand or more, depending on exactly what you're looking at. Uh, you're talking about the queues for affordable housing. We're talking you know a decade or more that's easily. Right. That's right. So that's... so I mean so for to say we'll cap office, would all of these metrics be fixed? Is is the price of a house going to be a hundred thousand dollars? Is that's, the price of rent? No, because I'd say not at all. So what is the fix going to look like? Well, I think. What it does is alerts the community, not only Palo Alto, but the surrounding community, of the depth of the crisis. We we don't have very much land left. And if Palo Alto doesn't commit to using their resources to provide not only housing for workers in general who are now traveling two hours to get to and from work from Gilroy, I mean, I even we've interviewed some of the people who work for City Hall who are janitors and receptionists and so on, and they are uh, pooling together, some of them, five people in a car. One person drives one day, the next person drives the next day, and they're traveling from Salinas. Yeah. This creates horrendous traffic, congestion, use of fuel, fossil fuel pollution, Uh, people having to pay more for babysitters because they're gone longer. All of these factors need to be considered. And Palo Alto seems to see itself as an island in this mess. And I think it would be a wake-up call if we could get the city to do that kind of moratorium. Not permanently, but until there's uh, parity, until there's a balance between jobs and and housing. So, so you would say that it actually should be the amount of jobs and housing should be like actually equal before that's lifted. Well, at least it's now what four to one, five to one. Well, I mean, in recent years, uh, Mountain View Voice, I believe, reported it's over thirteen jobs for every new housing unit in Palo Alto. Wow. And I mean, it's so dispiriting that the comprehensive plan a couple of years ago, and I think the most ambitious housing production, it still was lagging their anticipated office productions. Like. You you're in you're in the hole. You need to get out, right. not dig it further. And it seems like the they the planning department and the council are all seemingly unwilling. And I mean, me as a skeptic feels that 
is it because one, it's profitable for the city to make more office, and it's you know it's a liability to create more housing, so it's certainly the easy way out well, to I think continue. It's several things. Yeah, I think we have a pro-development city council, um, who and many citizens in the town don't really want apartment housing around them. They really like their single-family housing situation. So we've got nearly, what is it, 48%, 46 48% tenants. And now some folks who are former homeowners are having to rent because they can't mm. keep up with, uh, they can't buy this housing at this point in time. So I think... Uh, it's a combination of lack of commitment to the workers of the city, lack of interest in finding land. I mean, even the school board uh, recently has said, well, we've decided we really don't think a portion of Coverley, uh, which is a large uh, former school area, Coverley, uh, we were going to build some housing there, support teacher housing. Now yeah. they've taken a u-turn on that and so um so i see it as a kind of arrogant uh self-interest uh, uh office space gives them a lot more profit and yet you know you can find you can go down the downtown area and you don't even know who are in these buildings the amazon's a couple blocks away from where i live there's no no uh, building sign that says this is Amazon. You know they don't want us to know yeah. how much is high tech and and uh, so so we have to do something large, something grandiose to wake them up and let them know how unfair, how unjust this is. I mean, it's it's worth. I mean, a few a few months ago they were talking was the first. Uh, basically 100% affordable housing plan in better part of 10 years or something. So, I mean, we are in a hole. There's there's a tremendously long queues. It's, it's, the question is, why, why, what is stopping Palo Alto from being able to build at scale, and why do they not want to? Well, one thing I would like to add to this is that, you know, I, I, my, from my perspective, I think the city council is actually somewhat neutral as to what gets built. I think, but developers obviously want to build, you know, Office, yeah. offices and other commercial uses. You know, the President Hotel is a yeah. you know, prime example. They don't want they don't want to rent it out. And and by the way, um, you know, the head of development for AJ Capital told me personally that you know they thought about maybe sticking with a residential use once the legal problems became evident. Um, apparently to them. And they said, oh, but that doesn't pencil out, right? So yeah. that, you know, that I think drives the council and the politics in Palo Alto, that the developers don't want to build certainly below market rate housing. They don't want to build even necessarily the luxury housing. So they want offices and the council bends to that. Well, so I guess here is a kind of a major question, which is, so this is one lever. One lever is the city The city has the ability to kind of direct planning to a degree, direct approvals, and can try to steer it towards affordable housing. And for various reasons, they have, I'd say, like objectively been incredibly unsuccessful at this. You know, they, they, they have not. I mean, so the three Ps, this is a famous thing that, that people are throwing around these days in, in affordable housing, which is, you know, production. Uh, of 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 units that are affordable, protection of tenants, and preservation of affordable housing. And I think Palo Alto has done 
an incredibly bad job of all three of these. Right. And, and now they've further exacerbated the problem by talking about making developers who are coming up for housing uh, projects uh, use only electricity. And that's insane at this point in time. That's going to make it more expensive, harder for people to build. They should provide incentives if they're going to do this, and they should mandate solar. Why in the world are we not looking at solar as a solution? Uh, but but saying electricity without any kind of incentives uh, for developers is going to make it even harder for uh, for anything to be built here, but right. particularly affordable housing. Yeah, you look at deadweight dead lost. You try to actually make sure that you make regulations that make things better. But if regulation just stops things and doesn't actually get what you want, which should be, what do you want? Do you want development of affordable housing that's clean energy? But if you get no development, that's that's not really the best outcome. Right. I see. I I would be tempted to look further than a moratorium. And let me first say that a problem with a moratorium, and I know San Francisco is also looking at at something like this. The problem is that developers often have very long time frames. Um, they will, you know, be willing to sit on a property for decades before they, um, you know, proceed to to do something with it. So a moratorium says, okay, you can't do a project this year or next year, but just wait, and you'll eventually be able to do it. The council will change or something like that. Yeah. So I'd be interested in going further and being able to say, the problem is that these um, sites allow for office. They allow for other kinds of uh, commercial development. They allow for luxury housing. And I think we should start taking away those options. Town zoning is exactly. what you're talking about. Yeah, and, sure. And that, Great idea. you know, we should do it thoughtfully. And obviously we need to do it, you know, with a mindful, you know, of constitutional uh, limitations on it. But I think affordable, um, below market rate housing should be our number one priority. And I think we should definitely use the the, you know, serious methods uh, to get there. So I, I worry that, you know, we are replicating the past in some ways. If you look at San Francisco 45 years ago, they went through a very innovative downzoning program to save its affordable housing with no real plan in mind to create more affordable housing, to create public housing schemes, to do anything to actually make things better. So you could, I'd say compared to the peninsula, they actually have done more preservation in SF. And I I certainly tip my hat to that. But SF, I think, does not have a forward-looking vision because downzoning to try to scrape what we have is inherently, you know, a, a conservative vision of trying to keep what's there. For instance, you know, we're looking, what, what can we do to save the present hotel? What are we doing to not create 10 new present hotels, 10 new, you know, let's say SRO style, you know, affordable units that have, you know, perhaps, you know, things that would make a place naturally affordable, such as being underparked, such as, and I think that there's no real desire to do this. I mean, well, I, again, this, this, the, uh, there's a perfect example of this is the so-called VTA lot, right. which is right in smack in the middle of, of Palo Alto. This was publicly owned property. This is, this is El Camino and Page Mill. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We, the public, owned this property. Yeah. It got sold off by the VTA. Right, the city of Palo Alto should have bought it. Apparently, didn't even get noticed um, yeah. um, as required by law. Didn't get noticed, and then instead of saying, "Okay, we're going to change the zoning from which originally was only for public facilities," to change the zoning so a hundred percent 
below-market-rate housing project could go there. Instead, they zoned it for a project that won't have a single unit that is below-market-rate in it. The lowest-priced units in that will be, I think, at 120% of median income, and most of the units will be completely unregulated. Right. Yeah. I'm proud to say that three of our seven council members, I'm sorry, two of our council members voted against that. But the rest of them went ahead and approved it. This is a ridiculous project. I mean, you could say that, yeah, this is not going to be, you know, a step in the direction you want. But I guess the question is, what is the positive outcome that is actually going to deliver the subsidized units at scale you want? I mean, you talk about the city sold off land it owned publicly. I mean, I certainly imagine... The VTA. Sorry, sorry, sorry. The VTA. So the city never held it, but they they They, certainly didn't grab at the right to buy it from them. Exactly. For the city to actually develop affordable housing at scale, one would say that it would certainly help if they kept a portfolio of land themselves. I don't see any real appetite for municipal land acquisition. And in fact, I went to like uh, the Caltrain uh, meetings earlier this week talking about uh, uh, great separation. And every time they mentioned what is the land acquisition we need, it is said like, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, because they know that people who have land are going to be scared to death of any uh, of any uh, city attempt to take away the land. And I think, honestly, we need to say if there is you talk about, you know, these, you know, it's a you know luxury units uh, at this VTA lot. I think the real luxury units in, in Palo Alto are the three million dollar homes, and we need to actually be looking at eminent domain to buy up this land to be able to use it for real affordable housing. Because I think it's very right to say, oh, we can't cheer and say, oh, look at this, you know, one twenty AMI unit. But I think the real outrage is all of these incredibly expensive detached ranch homes that cost three million dollars. Well, I think a fair a fair plan would look at what a reasonable rate of production is and then look at what land sites are available. And given the how challenging it is in California to build anything now because of labor shortage and such, that I'm not sure the city needs to buy up, you know, or are one lots. I think there's plenty of other land. You know, there's I think it's a million square feet of land undeveloped in the research park. I mean, that that right there is this huge amount of land that, and the city has control of that land. But, but Stanford it's, owns it. Well, Stanford owns it, but the city controls what right. gets built on right. Right. I'm, I, it's, it's not very walkable to transit. It's kind of in the middle uh, of nowhere. There's shuttle buses there right now. I'm just saying, it's. it seems like, I, I don't know. It's like, it, it is something. I was just like spending time in, in Mountain View, and Mountain View tries to say, we'll build where we can. It's usually industrial conversions, but it means you build the stuff in kind of the these outposts. And I'd say you really need to build right in the core. Like, you know, uh, where I am, it's like there's single-family homes a 10-minute walk away from, from Caltrain. That's There are other opportunities. There are plots that are being redeveloped um, in, in Palo Alto for office use that could be affordable housing projects. Right, right. And this downzoning would, would have a, you know, create all these kinds of opportunities. Um, I think that it's... All these things should be looked at. Yeah. But the problem is when somebody shows up and says, I want to build, to turn residences into a hotel, city employee instinct should be to say, whoa, yeah. that's the opposite direction of we're trying to go and make sure that they avail themselves of all legal options that we have to prevent that. I mean, Instead, it's just dead. Yeah. <laughs> they green light it. So you're talking, okay, so, uh, 
we're talking about the rental mor- moratorium of, of any kind of demo of rentals. I, th- I think this is something uh, that would at once prevent the destruction of our, our, our very imperiled uh, you know, affordable housing stock. And I think also would kind of push development to places that aren't being occupied by renters right now. I think this would be a win. Is there any kind of uh, sense that people would support this in any level? What, what are you seeing as far as responses to uh, a rental uh, demo? Well, um, I don't think the planning commission and the house and the city council majority are very interested in such things. I think we have we have a Palo Alto Housing Corp, and even that organization has not worked very diligently to access land in Palo Alto that's available for low income housing for worker housing. Um, they are even going outside the city rather than working within the city to look for housing sites. So I, I think we need to um, have uh, tenants pressure the city. There's another group that claims to be interested in uh, rental housing. It's called Palo Alto Forward. We found that they really haven't come forward to argue for low-income housing. They want housing for uh, high-tech workers, but that's expensive housing, and they want uh, affordable housing, rental housing, because they can't have uh, the kind of homeowner housing at this point because of the cost of it, the outrageous cost. So even though they speak uh, once in a while at city council meetings about their interests in affordable housing, uh, yeah, when the rubber hits the road, they have really little uh, pressure on the council and the, the planning commission to do very much towards worker housing. And if you if you look around, you see that people have put signs up all over hiring now in in um, jobs that are low income jobs that are uh, um, minimum wage jobs. So the city is really. Uh, in need of addressing that because they can't find enough low-income workers who are willing to travel these distances uh, to work in the city. So so let's talk about, you're talking about the pressure that can come from tenants. Uh, you have a history of, of having, uh, you know, I, th- I think you worked with the Palo Alto Tenants Union in the past. Is that is that correct? I heard you say right, this before. Right. Can you talk I, about some background? Yeah, sure. In uh, in 19, late 60s, uh, I live on the edge of uh, of the downtown district, and there was low-income housing in my neighborhood. And Wells Fargo Bank bought this housing this housing up and did not let us know until they were ready to tear it down. Uh, about a block and a half of housing, in effect, on the uh, on Hamilton from Waverly to Webster Street. Mm that whole street with a few exceptions and half of the block into Webster. There was a small publishing house there, but other than that, it was all apartment and low-income housing, fourplexes, sixplexes, and so on, and one big house that had maybe eight or ten units. Um, We lived next door, and we got involved and were... uh, part of the group that created the Palo Alto Housing, Palo Alto Tenants Union, we in fact stood in front of bulldozers to try and keep that from going down. Mm. 
we lost that, but we developed the housing uh, palliative tenants union and uh, required, got the, the uh, Wells Fargo Bank to pay people who were leaving uh, a certain amount of money to be able to go to another, basically most of them ended up in another city. Um, I then in 1970 or 71 ran for city council on a rent control platform and um, I didn't win clearly I got three or four thousand votes but we raised people's awareness of the need for housing and we feel that in part we were responsible for the Webster Woods housing project which is a Palo Alto housing corp low-income low-moderate-income uh, Maybe 130 units, I'm not sure. And at this time, you said it was about 50% uh, renters in Palo Alto? It was about 48, 49. So, so you feel like, like if they all turned out, you had a fighting chance of... Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, but tenants are really hard to organize. They're very vulnerable. Yeah. They're afraid of um, landlords' response if they see them doing organizing work. Uh, we picketed Wells Fargo, trying to get them to provide some housing for the housing that was going down. Uh, they were pretty unresponsive, but we did get that housing on on Webster Woods, and we got Scott Street Park. And a couple of people moved from that project, uh, Navajo Indian family, to Scott Street, which is in the um, periphery of the downtown area. So... We also uh, organized a Palo Alto Tenants Union food conspiracy, which provided um, uh, food at basically cost. We bought a truck and went up to the city and went to the produce terminal and distributed food for that community around the downtown Um at Addison School, out of Addison School. And that lasted for maybe five or six years. Uh, but keeping that going was really hard because tenants are working and it's very hard to keep them engaged in organizing when the council, for the most part, was not as responsive and less so today. But uh, there was also a split in the council, um, residentialists versus office and corporate development. And... Uh, Various people who were on the council at the time played various parts in either supporting or not supporting low and moderate income housing. And now we're at a place where it's really um, very hard to get this council to respond to the needs of workers in the city who are low income. Yeah, it's certainly, I'd say, the case that it's renters get organized usually when they're in trouble. Right. It's very hard for them to get organized when yeah. they have the strength to actually... Uh, you know, show power. And that's right. a, a continual... It's a crisis. It's yeah. a crisis that gets people engaged. And then when that crisis is temporarily pulled back, then, you know, they have to take care of their kids and pay the rent. And it's very hard to do that kind of organizing. Did, did you happen to be involved with the Paul Tutens Union v. Morgan uh, case? Uh Tell me a little bit about... I, I just find if you search for policy tenants unions, this is one of the top things that pop up, which is a, a case that actually reached federal courts. It was them suing the city manager in 1973, uh, saying that the single-family zoning of the city was actually a discriminatory uh, because it uh, at once did not allow for you know multifamily to live together. 
uh, right. you know, zoning I, designations. I do recall that. And Morgan was the city manager at that time. Yes. And we also had a suit. We won this one, a, a rent control suit, or a suit against a landlord in, let's see, it's in the, uh, I'm trying to think of the area. It's now a place where, well, Park Boulevard area, South Park Boulevard, where uh, one of our organizers who was a tenant also uh, sued the landlord for retaliatory eviction. So yeah. we did have a little bit of success, but again, those things are very hard to win. <clears throat> there was a uh, a bit more assistance than in the form of a, a, a law collective that was, uh, um, in fact, I volunteered for this law collective that helped us. They're part of the National Lawyers Guild in Menlo Park, and they were involved in providing some legal assistance, but uh, they couldn't give us full-time help, and so we took on a couple of cases, but not yeah. not uh, very successfully. So I feel like, in general, when you're talking about um when you're talking about, uh, you know, unions as far as workers, it's very it's it's usually framed as the workers versus the bosses. Uh, when it's a tenant union, it's it's framed as you know the uh, you know the 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 tenants versus the landlords. Uh, I feel like one kind of conspicuous you know dynamic is uh, if you're a tenant, do you have an out? Can you stop being a tenant? Can you buy a home? In some ways, it's, it's analogous to being a scab or something because you kind of like leave the solidarity of working with tenants together. Because well, I feel it's very, very hard to really fight for tenants if you're not a tenant yourself. Some people do it, but it's hard. Well, I, that's really true. And in my case, that's what happened to me. Um, I came to this area um, because I received a scholarship as an undergrad and a graduate student at Stanford. And the house that we were renting just happened to be uh, owned by people who lived in Montana, and I'm from Montana. Mm. And so they said, look, we're going to probably sell this and either have a condo put up or a couple of condos. And it's a, you know, it's a very modest, wood-framed, old 1909 house. And they said, would you be interested in purchasing this. And we didn't really have very much money then, but we took out a loan and I thought it was something like $30,000. Yeah. And otherwise I would not be able to afford to live in, in this area, let alone in Palo Alto. So, yeah. and I do believe that we, some of us homeowners are working with tenants, but tenants have to pick up the, pick up a little bit more of the weight, even though I know it's hard for them to do that because it, it should be tenants working with homeowners who are concerned about tenants' rights. Um, but we shouldn't be the leadership. Tenants should be the leadership in this. And it's been hard to keep tenant leadership in our organization. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I was working with uh, back uh, back before I got evicted from Sunnyvale, was working this Sunnyvale Tenants Union. The problem is so many people were being evicted, priced out, moving. It's I mean, yep. homeowners are stable, right. which gives them the ability to actually advocate, which, I mean, if, again, drawing the cynicism out of me, that kind of explains why so many of the policies help homeowners, right. and I'd say in my mind, and don't really do nearly enough to help tenants. Right. Uh, so, 
Yeah, so I, I guess, okay, so let's talk back about AJ Capital. What, what's the timeline of things moving ahead of like when decisions are being made of any waivers? Or is it just like everyone's just like fighting all the time? They're saying, oh, we're ready. We got our presentation, but like they, nothing is actually moving. Uh, a little over a month ago, they submitted a second application or a re- revised application. And it's not very different from their original one earlier this year. Um, but the city has now had over a month to look at it and presumably will come out with some list of you know, objections. What I pray is that the city will say, you know, this whole project is illegal and you can't do it. And AJ Capital and its lender and its investors will say, oh, my gosh, you know, we really aren't going to get away with this. Um, so we'll see. And I think it's really vital that, you know, the community show up and be part of the, you know, keep the city honest. Um so that that's the next step, you know. The, AJ Capital, as you pointed out, you know, they got rid of all the the tenants, so that group isn't there to advocate. And they're um, buying off the former tenants to now advocate for them, which uh, is like uh, at least uh, one or two, yeah, yeah. And, and they bought off a, a, a f- like former city employees in the past. Yes, you know? they have former city employees, including the former right. director of planning, and and. Um, they, you know, dangled money in front of these nonprofit groups, right. and who knows who else is out there who's been, <laughs> you know, been offered money. That's right. Um, you know, in exchange for their support, I'm I'm proud to say that two of the, both local papers have taken very strong stances against. Um, what AJ Capital is doing, and that, it's one of those clear-cut cases. I feel like even people I normally disagree with, I'm glad that everyone's on the same page on something like this. Yeah. Uh, Regarding the tenants who are still here, there were three or four at this uh, demonstration on uh, October 29th. I think it was in front of Il Fernio. Uh Somebody who was a former tenant has become involved and in maybe working for AJ Capital. I'm afraid now a tenant, formerly at the President Hotel, so. She got, she was on an email that uh, other tenants were sharing as to what we were planning to do, and she exposed this to AJ Capital. So they had initially developed a 44, I think it was 44, maybe 42 page, very glossy booklet to sell their program for what the hotel was going to be like, this new hotel. And because uh, they were informed that we knew about this, they pulled that pamphlet and tried to talk to people one-on-one about what they were doing, uh, but didn't show this glossy booklet. There may be another reason as well, which was um, I I would I have a copy of that uh, the now a collector's item, um, <laughs> and uh, it included one of the organizations that um, was in there was Canopy, right? And it turned out Canopy had said they had not given permission mm. to have their name use used, mm-hmm. and so um, even the next day after this was exposed, AJ Capital sent out a digital version that Canopy's name had been removed, removed from. Yeah. So, that, mm, funny. so so that may be why they didn't have right. printed copies available. Really fun underhanded tactics all across the board from these guys. Also trying to buy Downtown Streets, uh, which is a non-profit I think was oh, really... Oh, buying the entire org? No, 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 no. just, just, oh, just their, using the, them yeah, okay, in effect. Okay, sure, sure, uh, okay. Saying that they were supporting this project was, I think, pretty sleazy at best. Certainly. And so uh, something I was talking about earlier is I, I, I think I'm a skeptic of... I mean, I think it's certainly pragmatic to make extractions when you have, you know, make it hard to develop and, and, and can make 
community abstract extractions. This is the kind of SF Calvin Welch mindset. I think there it's 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 a bit arbitrary. It's a bit hard to scale. I think it has a poor track record. Uh, but I think on top of that, one thing I worry about is one of the kind of concessions that it's fighting for is more parking. And I'd say personally myself, I feel based upon the urgent need of kind of creating better, more sustainable cities. I would say actually the best part of the present hotel, one of the best parts was it was partly uh, naturally affordable because it had, it was underparked. It was on University Avenue. You walk down to the Caltrain station. It's fine. And I would say, if I was looking at concessions, I'd say that should be very bottom of the list. Well, I have to disagree with you. Um, First of all, it turned out that people looked into this and how much parking the building was using. And it was actually that virtually every unit had, had a car. And they were buying permits um, mm. for their thing. I, I did a check just yesterday and found, you know, that they had uh, 44, I think it was, permits that they had purchased. And that's just one kind of permit. There are other kinds of permits. So, and they had, um, I think you reported on a previous show that they didn't have parking, but in fact there is some uh, 11 spaces in yeah, the basement yeah. as well. Small amount, So yeah. what we have found, I think, in looking at these is that it's really actually important for people to have parking. Um, there's a whole class of people who never get talked about in these discussions, and that's people with physical disabilities. They need parking, and they need parking right in in you know proximity to where they live. There are people for whom personal safety is an issue. And, you know, they come home from their second job at 10 o'clock at night, and they, they can't walk four blocks in the dark, and it's not a safe thing to do. Um, there are people with kids. There are people with groceries. There are people with all kinds of reasons why they need parking um, proximate. And I think developers have created a false narrative that getting rid of parking will somehow, um, you know, bring down the cost of, of housing considerably. Rather, I think what it does is it puts more money in their pockets. And so I think we need to be um, clear about, you know, if, if you're going to underpark a building. By the way, Palo Alto has a law right now that a affordable housing project um, doesn't have to provide any more parking than it can demonstrate it is, is actually necessary. So you could act, um, and that's what Wilton Court has used, um, right. um, reduced their parking requirements by that by that token. But I don't think we should let you know for-profit developers, you know, just push the cars and you know people onto neighboring streets and um, yeah, and and uh, onto the street, city streets where commercial development or uh, offices and uh, stores are, so that they're basically uh, taking up the shoppers. In East Palo Alto, you know, there's uh, a notable problem with this, and people are are terribly um, inconvenienced, and it's it's not safe and it's not appropriate for people with disabilities, I think, too. So when you say uh, buy a permit, are you talking about the residential parking permit program, or are you talking about, you know, in uh, private lots or something? Uh, uh, Well, they're buying city run permit programs, yeah. one of the permits that they're buying is those residential permits, which let them block, uh, park some blocks away. They're also eligible for commercial permits, uh, which let them park in the garage at, mm-hmm. just across the street from the from the building. So, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's not, I mean, those are not very expensive as far as it goes. As far as you talk about what it costs to make a new parking unit, it, right. it costs a lot. And I think you are correct to say that it's not like people are selling these off at cost, but I think there's certainly, at the very least, you talk about the cost of construction. That's the floor of what they can sell it at. And if you're charging, uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to to, to make, uh, you know, a parking spot, you know, usually far far more, that you're 
you're going to have to pay for this in the end. Well, actually, there's a theory that the people who end up paying for the parking are the people who own the land because the value of a building is based on how much it could be rented for. And the land cost goes down when the cost of construction goes up. Yeah. So really saying that, you know, let's let's not require buildings to park puts money into some landowner's pocket. No, I, I think that is that is correct to say. And um, if there was an overriding theme in the show, we need to address landowners directly. <laughs> and like, uh, yeah, it is true to say uh, if you actually give concessions and make it easier this this will, in fact, make the land more desirable because you extract the revenues in the long term. I guess a lot of part of it is I just feel that insofar as we are trying to be a green city, we should actually look at ways to try to live car free in ways. And you're, you're absolutely correct. This is not scaled everybody, but it is incredibly hostile around here to get anywhere without a car. Almost everyone in the Peninsula has a car because our city planners have been doing a terrible job of making cities where anyone can live without a car. Well, there's probably few people in Palo Alto who walk around the city more than I do. I walk over here, um, but there's still cars everywhere, and surveys show that people, most people, have cars, and people with you know of all income levels need cars. Um, well, it, in addition to that, um, we need to mention that Stanford is one of the largest landowners here, and hasn't done its fair share of providing either housing for its own workers, especially low-income workers nor transportation during this two-year has it been debate as to the gup gup proposal which finally ended in stanford saying well we're not going to play your game right now we'll probably come back with something else but they withdrew their proposal it's wild temporarily there's a couple couple episodes i've had with scope 2035 where the stanford student group trying to push for a gup that actually cares for workers yes better Thank heavens they came out, by the way. Oh, that what a great a rally. Show. Yeah. But so Stanford walked away from it, which means like, oh, wait, we don't need this GUP, which means that they actually are going to run out of county provisioned development in very al- soon. almost no time at all, right. which is like, this isn't a very good long-term plan for them. I mean, but it sounds like they're just trying to try to get out, uh, trying to change the dialogue. Yeah, they want the rabble-rousers to graduate and go away. And so, you yeah. know... You know, uh, if a that, nonprofit organization like Stanford can't be, right. you know, nonprofit, yeah, right? Can't can't you know agree to mitigate its its you know issues? I don't expect anybody else to do it. Right. right. So, so uh, I, I, they were unwilling even to provide shuttle buses, the Marguerite, to workers in East Palo Alto. East Palo Alto was saying, "Look, we have to come this distance to go to work." Fortunately, we live in East Palo Alto. It isn't like living in Salinas, 50 miles or more. But you need to help us provide transportation. It takes, if you go on to University Avenue at any time after 3 on a weekday to get to East Palo Alto, it takes an hour or an hour and a half to get to the East Palo Alto Council. Every time I go, I, I clock it. And that is crazy and insane, and they could eliminate a lot of that if they would provide some uh, some transit outside of this city to East Palo Alto, Redwood City, Mountain View, wherever. So we're also uh, pushing Stanford to yeah. give its full commitment to providing adequate housing for so many of the workers who travel so far and who get... Uh, it does a good job. Very if you're a student, support. you're cared for at Stanford. If you're a worker, not so well, much. Some students, although the graduate students yeah, and, I, the, and the 
postdocs really do not have help and they need more housing for those folks, yeah. as well as adjunct professors who get very little uh, uh, cachet. Uh, we have recently let people know that a good part of College Terrace is owned by Stanford. And, you know, students don't get that housing, postdocs don't get that housing, graduate students don't get the housing. It's uh, full-time mm. uh, tenure-track faculty only. Yeah. And it's pretty expensive at that. So I felt I was a grad student for a while, and I was spoiled with, I think, very relatively affordable housing. And I appreciate it while it lasted, but it doesn't last. And doesn't last. And, and, and you're right. Not everybody uh, gets it uh, to, to the extent they need. So a question, a question for you is just kind of as far as dealing with the need for truly affordable housing, what would be your wish list? If you could just kind of get things that would be picked up and run with, what's your program to actually get the cues down, you know, lower rents and actually really change things for the better for for tenants? I think there are no easy quick fixes. And I think that it's a regional, it's a state problem. It's a national problem. Look at the homelessness. I mean, the poverty rate, the inequity around this country is astounding. So tenants need to start stepping up their activities. We need residents who can help people who are homeowners who are we do have a group of people who are supporting tenant rights uh, I, I don't think it's uh, it's going to happen quickly I think that cities like Palo Alto have to be pushed harder uh, I don't know that shame and guilt and blame is a way of uh, of urging them forward but we don't have many legal grounds at this point in time um, the state's obviously committing a certain amount of money to building housing I don't know how much of that will really be low-income housing for low-income workers. Uh, but um, r- good, solid rent control is going to help. Just cause evictions will help. I think this rent control is a step in the right direction, clearly not strong enough. I think every bit of available land the city should be uh, taking inventory of and putting Housing, low-income housing is the most important priority there. I think moratoriums on office development and any other kind of commercial building until this housing is constructed is absolutely necessary. And those are just a few things off the top of my head. So what what do you think about municipal land acquisition? I think the city should buy up this land. I think uh, there's no reason why not. They already have a housing corp that's supposed to address those needs. They can buy the housing up. I mean, the school district owns some uh, land as well, and that that is another option for housing. Uh, The city, uh, the school district initially was very committed to building teacher housing there, and now they're saying, well, there's not much in it for us. I mean, that was almost a quote by the, uh, was it the superintendent, Don Neeson? I'm not sure what his, uh, I can't recall his name, but anyway, it's in the paper in the last few days. Mm. So um, they they have to be, um, I guess they have to be pushed much harder uh, to see that a community that is primarily white, or primarily upper income serves really not anyone's needs and interests. Not being able to live in a community where you work, you can't contribute to the schools, you can't contribute to 
the city governance in a very viable way. Um, we need a, a more uh, general commitment to uh, diversifying this city, which is a very wealthy city, a very privileged, primarily white and wealthy Asian city. And um, that has limitations. Kids need to grow up with kids who are racially, ethnically, and in terms of social class different from each other. Um, that promotes a willingness to work together, to live together, to be less racist, uh, to be more cooperative, and um, and those are all reasons why we need to uh, have a much more um, multi-ethnic and uh, social, socially, um, economically variable city. Did Palo Alto ever have a busing thing itself? Because the amount of segregation between the Ravenswood School District and Palo Alto is absolutely disgusting in they, my mind. They did. They've, the they've like, uh, maintained a little bit of it, but there was a case. Oh, yeah, a little, the, enough, the, enough to assuage your guilt. A, it's quite a famous <laughs> exactly. case, the Tinsley yeah. case. Yeah, it's a, it's a major case. It basically was called a sneak-out program where kids, if they could sign up from East Palo Alto from the very get-go, from kindergarten on, and stay within the district their entire school time, that was allowable. Far fewer kids are doing that now. There was a... a uh, backlash against that and uh, a legal uh, battle. Um, I think uh, more of that kind of exchange is needed, not only in Palo Alto, but in other places like Atherton and, and uh, other cities that are primarily upper income, white dominant. Yeah. So, and I guess another question I guess I have for you is like, what do, what do you think it would take to kind of, you know, change zoning to permit, you know, several new units that are like the present hotel? If we lost it, what would it take to kind of create more, you know, SRO type units here in Palo Alto? Is there any appetite for that? Or is that just why, why aren't we seeing more of this? Because they are, I think, we, we don't want luxury units. If you take away kitchens, if you take away, you know, you're, it's going to be less luxurious. Well, I think that it will take a major change in the city council uh, to make this happen. And I think there are good people there who would support these kinds of projects. I think that there are more people who would be willing to go on the city council and support these kinds of projects. And I think that if a council majority were to say that is our priority, it could happen. Um, I think there's land. I think there are nonprofits. I think there's funding sources. Buena Vista hasn't been mentioned here yet, but there is a beautiful example of residents, um, tenants, um, and, you know, the city and uh, the county and so forth stepping in and doing a fantastic job um, of of preserving and and creating exactly the kind of um, community that we want um, to preserve in our our city. So I think that the right council members could do it. And the right planning commission members who seem so out of touch with what is needed. You should attend one of those meetings just to see for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So assuage my skepticism, like one more thought of just, I feel that, uh, you know, as, you know, as kind of framing things as the landless versus the landed, I think can be a very useful way to look at things here. And I think, you know, I sometimes see homeowners who will go to protest a development saying, oh, this isn't affordable enough. But I tend to think when someone is landed and being a homeowner here protected by Prop 13, 
uh, I, I really appreciate all your work, but I feel you're in the minority of people who are really fighting to kind of make positive change. And I feel that, honestly, I feel like the real framing has to be from taking away from a lot of very comfortable homeowners. And I think mm-hmm. there's not a lot of appetite for that. I mean, do you think that's a good framing? Because I think you can't get everything for free by saying, oh, if you protest the big development firms, that's that's you're going to get affordable housing. I think you actually need to redistribute land and do things that are actually going to make people a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree. I think that there have to be some legal mandates. I think that uh, Prop 13, uh, making these corporations pay their fair share, uh, will provide some money for cities. And I think that's inevitably going to happen. But uh, unless we get people uh, to commit socially and ethically to providing a more diverse uh, community, it's going to be a kind of, uh, I would describe it as a, as a local white nationalist city. It's it has an ugly history of being. Yep. I mean, I think it's it has always been subjugating East Palo Alto historically. Oh. It's been it's, I, I, I and Redwood City I'm absolutely. It's up, it's yeah. it's. I think it has to come to grips with this. I mean, there's a there's a long history, and I think people can say, oh, I you know, I've been here for years, and I've you know, I've I wasn't part of it. I think everyone's complicit, yep. and yeah. Yep. And I mean, earlier you're talking about Palto Forward that you're kind of skeptical because they kind of represent their own interests, you know, and their interests are largely, you know, fairly privileged, high income right. people to a large extent. Uh, for the same, you know, token, I mean, should one be skeptical that homeowners are going to represent their material interest? And uh, I mean, it's in, like in Jeff, you like you and your family own like a thousand re- units you own as a landlord. Is that correct? Um my my extended family. Oh, not, extended. My, not, not my. Okay, but not, not okay. So, my, well, extended yeah. family can't hold against yes, too no, much. I, yeah, I, I, you know, this, this is not something I, I've never purchased an apartment building in my life. Yeah, I, I, I saw something about uh, rent control. No, but your, but yeah. but it, it's 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 interesting for me because I can speak for both sides of, of this issue. I think, and you know, inside inside a family that has all these units and so forth, and I said this publicly, you know. We don't think rent control is bad for landlords. You know, I'll probably get you know something burning on my lawn or something from the, 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 the you know CIA. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there goes my free uh, magazine every month. But the but you know you landlords can do fine under rent control. And, That's the thing. And, like- and, and 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 you know, so I agree with the sentiment here that that the the you know it's going to take a piece of. Everybody needs to participate to solve the problems. But I don't want us to think that you're going to have to have such an enormous change in order to, like, get rid of Prop 13 before we can have more, you know, below-market rate housing in Palo Alto. Because we have to wait for that. No, we We work on all fronts. Yeah, we we may be here forever. So... (laughs) Well, so here's a question too: Is like the CAA are hardliners, and if people in your your family represent the kind of good landlord, why can't they make CAA not so bad? I mean, I tend to think that the, eventually you actually need to, you know, take away the wealth of landlords away from them through taxation and other means. But like, I mean, the CAA they will they never give an inch. I don't know that I'm qualified well, to, sure. to, I guess I, to yeah. fully describe the problems of that. I, I, I yeah. wrote a letter once, you know, just an outrage of some positions they had taken. But the, 
you know, they make their money by creating, by, you know, anger in the people that they claim to represent. And so they don't want to say, hey, you know, you'll do fine with us. They won't, they, they instead, you know, live on that, on that anger that they, that they create. So I, I, I don't think they're going to ever be part of the solution. No, I, I, I agree. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm scheduled all these hard lines. I mean, our own Lydia Kuhn, Greg Du Bois are part of, uh, Tom Du Bois are part of the uh, Livable California. And like, they are like even against like nonprofit housers. They're just incredible hardliners. Zelda Bronstein, you should see some of the rants she writes. But it's, it's, I don't know. It's like, I feel that, you, I mean, a lot of people ultimately are, human beings and i think that people aren't willing to kind of make other people suffer for abstraction but you get them together in some political org and suddenly they are it's, right. it's, yeah I, I haven't heard tom or lydia say anything against nonprofit housing in fact i i've quite the opposite so no but they haven't been very successful or active in really generating no. anything well concrete. The, and i think that goes back to the council majority yeah, issue yeah. right that yeah. they they are in the minority on these issues but i guess it was only a few years ago that we didn't have the you know, the pro developer wing as you as you have it, but there wasn't like it was a utopia of, of making public housing back then. In fact, there was I think no appetite at all for it. Right, right. <laughs> That's right. They they were able to do some some things um, which have then backtracked. For example, they tried to raise the amount of money for affordable for for below market rate housing that was collected from developer fees. Right, and then when the council changed, that got undone. Yeah. And it cost. I, I calculated out. It cost, we lost like over a hundred million dollars in prospective funding for below market rate housing because of the new council that That's came right. in. I mean, yeah. talk about disasters. Yeah, that really. But we're looking at one lever here, which is just basically what are the extractions when you have the development at its low rate, as opposed to what is real vigorous intervention at the city level to produce what we want. And I think no one's really thinking outside the small box. You know, I think looking at higher IZ rates, higher impact fees, this is the kind of thing that doesn't make anyone scared, as right. opposed to really right. changing right. the conversation. Yeah, that's really true. And yeah. that's why uh, we have to push harder and get more people involved for some real significant change. Well, thanks. Thanks a bunch, uh, both of you, for coming down here and talking about this. Yeah, uh, thanks for inviting us. We have been talking to Robert Alquist and Jeff Levinsky all about the present hotel and the Paul Fraten student here in Palo Alto. You can find this episode and all theirs at the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU Stanford. 